Hello, hello. Hello. And Ceci joining you here for our next episode of Chicana Motherwork. So um, today, the theme for this week um, for the podcast is on institutional violence. We bring this theme to the forefront in light of recent events that occurred at the UCLA campus on Wednesday, June 1st. As many of you know, UCLA had a shooting incident on campus. The university was on lockdown for over two hours as rumors spread over social media that there were multiple active shooters on campus. The event turned out to be a murder-suicide where a former PhD male student of color from UCLA came to campus and shot his former advisor, William Klug, a professor of mechanical engineering. This incident is not an uncommon occurrence. Since the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Connecticut, we have had 186 school shootings in the U.S. We believe that it's important to address the issue, not just about gun violence, but more specifically about institutional and structural violence in general. Um, these forms of violence at universities, which often result in very serious physical and psychological illnesses, repercussions, and even death. Um, we dedicate this podcast to what Sarah Amon calls the feminist politics of resignation from academic institutions and spaces. Sarah Ahmed, um, she's a, for those of you who may not be familiar with her, she's a prominent academic um, and she recently did just that. She recently resigned. Um, she's a British Australian academic whose research focuses on feminist theory, queer theory, critical race theory, and post-colonialism. And in her blog statement, um, where she announced her resignation, she reminds us that resignation is a feminist issue. And this is a quote from her blog. Um, Let me just say that I have resigned in protest against the failure to address the problem of sexual harassment. I have resigned because the costs of doing this work have been too high. Um, So in this blog post, she reminds us, all of us, to not be afraid to speak truth to power in these institutions, um, both at the structural level and um, the administrative level, or those who um, hold power, who have the power to make structural change happen. Um, So this brings to mind questions we've been talking about. Um, So when we encounter these types of institutional violence um, and structural uh, problems, which can include uh, sexual harassment, as Sarah Ahmed um, highlighted, So that leaves us with the question, do we go or do we stay? But do we even really have a choice when we've been pushed out, when the institution and people in positions of power are not accountable? Um, While Sarah Ahmed resigned in protest over the failure to address sexual harassment at universities, other professors are resigning for um, interrelated reasons or other reasons. Um, For example, a woman of color from my own department recently resigned Uh, We also know of other women of color who have left, women of color who have been pushed out, even before they um, were able to reach tenure, even before they start graduate school due to all these structural issues. Um, Who, and we've been thinking like who else has left and has not been able to speak about it. There's so much shame about leaving these spaces. And this is why we found um, Sarah Ahmed's statement about resignation so powerful. Uh, So this is another quote from her blog. Sometimes we have to leave a situation because we are feminists. Wherever I am, I will be a feminist. I will be doing feminism. I will be living a feminist life. I will be 
chipping away at the walls. So um, this, we find this to be um, a very powerful act and we will talk more about um, the relationship between uh, the violence that happened at UCLA this past Wednesday and also the larger structures of um, institutions and the corporate neoliberal university and how they this contributes to this toxic kind of culture where sexual harassment remains um, unchecked, where uh, mental illnesses are not accounted for, we don't have resources um, for mental health and, um, and other, and other uh, things that we may encounter. So um, after, so now we're just going to do a really brief check-in. Um, so what's going on with us? Um, I'll hand it over to Yvette right now. All right. So yeah, before we talk a little more about the UCLA shooting and about um, ways that we're trying to find antidotes to these forms of institutional and structural violence, I just want to check in on how I'm doing. Um, I'm dealing with a lot of mixed emotions right now. Um, in case you don't know, uh, I mentioned in an episode, I think in episode one or two, that I recently completed my PhD. I was on the tenure track job market for two years and did not obtain that coveted, quote unquote coveted tenure track job. I'm still in transition right now, working part time, waiting to start full time work after completing the PhD in February. Um, I've stopped applying for tenure track jobs. I may apply for community college tenure track jobs in the fall. But um, I refuse to do what my colleagues and mentors are telling me to do, which is to um, adjunct to keep publishing and then to go on the R1 academic job market all over again. Adjuncting would require teaching for minimal pay. Um, it would require pay rates that are below the poverty line. Publishing also requires incredible amounts of unpaid time um, that you have to dedicate for manuscripts, which may or may not be published after submitting them to multiple <laughs> journals. Um, so what I've been doing the past couple of months is shift gears towards alt-tech positions in student affairs and administration. And I keep asking myself, this is where the mixed emotions come in, um, am I getting pushed out? Am I getting pushed out because I can't afford to adjunct? Am I resigning myself from even entering what is often a toxic profession, especially for working class women of color, especially for mothers of color? So um, I'm not sure, but um, I, my family and I, like, we're, we're struggling right now. We're tight on money. My partner is a Marine veteran. Um, he's unemployed right now. He's legally disabled, even though he doesn't appear differently abled. Um, he also completed his schooling, so I acknowledge we're in a position of educational privilege, but he's struggling to find a job due, due to his physical limitations. Um, so we're just trying to find a way to stay afloat, to build community. We find hope in the fact that we're close to friends and family. We're really thankful um, that we've moved into a new apartment. Our son was recently accepted into an affordable preschool in Inglewood, which is huge because I've been on wait lists for over two years at multiple preschools. Um, this place, we've been on the wait list for almost a year, so um, I'm just really, really grateful. Um, it seems like things are starting to look up, but there's still a lot, of more, a lot more work ahead of us to make sure that we're okay. And there's a lot going on. Um, we've all been affected. Um, this week has been has been a rough week for us. So that's that's my check-in. Um, so I think a lot has been happening in terms of uh, both 
personal in my personal life so um kind of where i am right now um i've been uh kind of thinking about um discussing or planning to move into a different apartment um and being on the housing market in in la in the la area is um it's it's really hard given um gentrification and displacement so um you know the future kind of seems uncertain in the sense of will i even be able to secure um, an affordable uh, two-bedroom apartment um, with my son and with my partner and you know i hope to have more children so um how would i know we'll even be able to um you know find a place to live uh not knowing whether or not if the place we move into will be displaced after the lease or you know will be flipped after the lease is up um whether we can even afford it or what my own future looks like in terms of what i'm going to do after the phd uh because at this point um because of all these uh the intersectionalities that i have um women of color mothers are um less likely to secure tenure track positions so you know i'm aware of that um and so you know just thinking about you know looking around at the job at the housing market um yesterday i went to um a forum about um an application process for an affordable housing unit here in boyle heights which is being built on first and boyle and the room was just completely packed you know it was full of people of color um there wasn't even enough chairs people were spilling out of the exits like there was literally no place to move and there's only so many units being built for affordable housing but this it was clear that there's such a need for affordable housing especially in this area um and you know right after that we went to a um open house of a house that's still in boyle heights uh but further east and you know so we the contrast between you know seeing such a huge need for affordable housing and then we go to this uh open house for a two-bedroom home and you know we go there and there's a lot of um white people and it's just i think um the interaction was just kind of it was just kind of unusual for me because um you know this is you're just literally seeing how the process of gentrification is happening even on an interpersonal level where um these uh, where white people are just like coming into these spaces and and it just with a sense of um entitlement or even just their behaviors and mannerisms and um you know and this is the location of the house you know it's in the hood but they're coming for the cheaper rent so um so and it made me think about what uh what one of the women from our the last podcast when we had the podcast with the revolutionary mothering editors um after the podcast we went and had lunch at Proyecto Jardin and I was sharing with the editors um kind of the history of what's happening with Proyecto Jardin and how the landowner of this community garden White Memorial Medical Center is moving forward with the uh eviction process of the garden so this is the next level of um they they recently took this legal step to uh take official eviction action against the garden and um 
And uh, Maya, one of the editors, um, she just kind of made a comment and she said, uh, we're not allowed to make community. And by we, she meant people of color. You know, we're just not allowed to make community. And it really made me think, so, you know, her comment really made me think deeply about, you know, is she, she's talking about communities where we live, but also even in academic spaces, we don't belong, we're actively pushed out of academia and we're being actively pushed out of our communities and our homes or not, you know we don't have a place of belonging a place to even be and um i was a couple of days ago i was in highland park um and i usually don't go to highland park ever but um and i was kind of amazed that there was a park there and uh, you know so this was like a, a gentrified area of uh highland park and um so you know first of all like the street we're on it was like right by the cafe cafe de leche you know a lot of white people like hipster like cool clothes you know <laughs> i'm just like they're so fashionable like or i don't know <laughs> but um <laughs> uh but you know just even walking down the street feeling out of place because i'm not i'm not even in these spaces in my daily life and um and so right across the street from Café de Leche, this cafe, uh, there's a park and it. And I did, I looked it up later, but it turns out that this is a $3 million park. And, you know, I was kind of tripping on the fact that there was um, a coded, like a, you needed a, like an electronic keypad and you need a code to even enter the park. And I'm just like, wow, they're, <laughs> they're really scared of brown folks. <laughs> I, just even the idea of like a key code on a, in a public park is just kind of mind blowing to me. And, you know, I've never seen anything like that. And, um, but again, but again, it's kind of, it made me think of Maya's uh, comment that, you know, we're not allowed, like <laughs> you need a key code to get into our park in this gentrified area that we took from people of color. So, um, you know, and I've been trying to find kind of um, balance in terms of, uh, you know, what are my next steps? What do I want to do? Um, how am I going to move forward with my career, or with my family? So, and feeling kind of a sense of uncertainty. So that brings us like thinking about being excluded from certain spaces, um, exclusive access to certain spaces, displacement, all of that are can be forms of institutional violence, of structural violence. So we keep mentioning this, this phrase, and I think we should talk a little bit more about how we're defining it. So for us, structural violence is a term that refers to violence that's caused by a social structure which may harm people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs. So if at any point some sort of system of power, some sort of structure is preventing you from your basic needs, whether that's health, whether that's housing, you know, whether that's, you know, your happiness, then that's a form of structural or institutional violence. So what does it look like? Cecilia, what does is, what is structural and institutional violence look like? So, um, so we're thinking of these questions, um, especially in light of the shooting, um, because there has been a lot of uh, already just online or social media about um, how could this ever happen? How could, you know, this person is, you know, mentally ill, who would, who would ever do this to the professor? And um, so, 
so that's kind of you know how we came to this topic for the podcast for today but and so you know as we were Yvette and I were kind of brainstorming and discussing this um you know so what does structural and institutional violence look like well it could look it could look like a lot of things on the one hand it could be something so visible and what is what can be shocking to so many people it could look like a PhD student of color killing his white professor and then himself. Um, institutional violence can look like mental illness. It can look like neglect. It can look like toxic workplaces, um, which literally kills people, like the the cancer cluster at the Department of Literature at UC San Diego. Um, so y- you can Google this and sign their petition that they're circulating. Um, it is structural violence can look like the corporate neoliberal university which is a space of toxic whiteness there was uh, a recent blog post written by um a black uh, a black a recent graduate at, from northwestern university and this blog post is called um a black ass nightmare my four years at northwestern uh by natalie uh, fraser and in this blog post um, i mentioned this because she calls the university, um, her four years at a university, a white nightmare. Um, you know, so how do we deal with all of these, um, this institutional violence that's embedded into our classrooms every day? Um, and for those here in the Chicana Mother podcast, and also for a lot of our listeners, um, in our as scholars uh, in our institutions, we tend to work at the intersections of ethnic studies and gender studies, queer studies, and um, and these are the departments and or these are the academic spaces which are constantly under attack. They're constantly being defunded. Uh, they're constantly undervalued. Um, so we're already in like precar- in a precarious position in the department. You know, as uh, as evidenced by um, like the recent hunger strike at SF State. Um, and also, especially this past year, the various uh, student organizing that's been happening, student of color organizing happening um, all across the United States to, um, to name and call out the, uh, the, this type of institutional violence. So, um, so as we're working in these, you know, in a space of institutional violence, a place of toxicity, um, you know, then Another thing, another thing that can contribute to institutional violence are other people of color. Uh, this can include people of color faculty who are in positions of power, who do have access to uh, very high salaries. Um, they, they are now the gatekeepers of these uh, spaces, ethnic studies, gender studies. They become the gatekeepers and they're actively pushing us out and contributing to this toxicness. Um, And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And as mothers of color, um, institutional violence looks like when a national conference denies you access to childcare, or when one room where mothers can spend time with their children isn't even an option. Um, So, like, that's a form of institutional violence, especially for graduate students who have, you know, an income below the poverty line when you can't afford childcare and then you can't afford to go to the conference unless you bring your child but there's no childcare that's there's a form of violence there's not even a not even a room like, yeah no room no that no, that wouldn't cost anything or when your children are considered a liability that's institutional violence um, institutional violence you know is 
again, going back to this topic of graduate students getting paid below the poverty line, um, getting exploited while their tenured professors make anywhere between 90K and 150K. We were being chismosas this morning and looking at professors' salaries and someone we know um, who's a tenured professor makes over 250K. I think someone else that we looked at Makes almost 300K. 290 grand a year. Like these are annual salaries. Um, but we, mothers of color, graduate students, recent graduates, we're poor and overworked. And we don't have access to the same financial resources. So it's not the same when someone tells you, I'm a mother too, and I don't bring my children to conferences. No, but you, you're in a different position of power as we are. And so for you to not vouch on our behalf is, that's a form of violence. So there's this huge class divide that, um, no one wants to talk about, no one wants to acknowledge, no one wants to talk about uh, the fact that our faculty are wealthy, the fact that some of our fellow graduate students, graduate students of color, have family wealth far beyond what I can even conceive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, just versus my own uh, kind of background where, you know, I come from a family of intergenerational poverty, you know, I, it's not, academia is not based on pure merit, on pure hard work, when we are starting at vastly different um, positions and positionalities. Um, in terms of my own family, um, you know, I'm here I am at the PhD stage where I'm finishing my dissertation. Um, at the same time, because of the intergenerational poverty in my family, my family member, my family, my mom and dad, and my two younger brothers, um, they are in the process of getting evicted. And they don't have anywhere to go. They don't have a place to live. You know, there's four of them. Um, because of poverty, racism, you know, all of these structural issues, my family, they have, all, you know, just various kinds of things. Um, um, they have, uh, you know, unmanaged schizophrenia, there's alcoholism, there's physical and verbal abuse, there's, they have chronic illnesses, chronic pain. Um, this is what poverty looks like, and this is where I'm, this is where I come from. Um, this, this is my reality. It doesn't matter how much I am told to work faster, to work harder, which is what my faculty tell me. Um, that I can make it like they did. But the reality is that academia is really for those who are either privileged enough to ha already have these kinds of resources or those who aspire to these standards of what is called academic excellence. But what does academic excellence or success even really mean for the neoliberal corporate institutions? So when poor mothers of color are not prioritized, we are actively pushed out this is an active process and um, decisions are being made every day um, and you know we're kind of left on our own and pushed out and disavowed. Mm -hmm. um, our concerns are not addressed in any real significant structural way. I can only echo what Cecilia has said. Um, I can relate to Cecilia too as a first-gen Chicana, first in the family to complete a BA, you know, or a PhD. Um, likewise, in my family, most individuals don't have a, a degree. Um, many of my cousins still live with their parents. Everyone, everyone is working class. 
Um, a lot of family members are struggling with chronic health issues, um, similar as the ones Cecilia mentioned, whether it's um, whether it's physical, verbal abuse, having chronic pain, having diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer. Um, we also have people who are struggling with closeted forms of mental health illnesses because of the shame um, that comes with revealing that you have a, a health issue, a mental health issue. Um, we don't have access to networks of privilege. We don't have family members who can get us good jobs. Um, and, and then go, to go back to this topic of pain, like a lot of us are dealing with chronic pain, like including myself, as a result of being in graduate school. It is a direct result of being in graduate school that I have both irritable bowel syndrome and endometriosis. And so for the rest of my life, I have to live with chronic abdominal pain, chronic pelvic pain, um, cramping, all types of pain. And I'm not the only one. I don't want to say, oh, I'm the exception, poor me. No, a lot of us are dealing with physical forms of pain, with mental health issues. And th these are all you know, in a direct correlation with the um, overwork and exploitation and stress that we dealt with in graduate school to what to end up without a job to end up seeing that the academic job market doesn't offer many decent paying jobs the only thing you can have is a 20k adjunct position or less actually some people make only 10 grand a year um, so it's just Institutional violence is when your personal life must be hidden, when middle class values are assumed and imposed on you, uh, when people don't think about the fact that you have a family to provide for or outside familial responsibilities to attend to. You just, you have to suffer in silence and, and we're not about that and we, we, can't, we can't do that anymore. I kind of, to um, just add to what you're saying, I kind of want to make um, the hashtag academia is not a meritocracy a thing because <laughs> it it's just like all of the issues that Yvette and I discuss it's it's it it's not an individual thing it's not mm -hmm. just about me it's not just about Yvette these yeah. are these are structural social issues uh, and it doesn't you, we can't just work hard and magically succeed in advance like mm -hmm. it doesn't work it doesn't work like that that's we all know the the just pull up your bootstraps and work hard like we all know that doesn't exist and yet we are still told by faculty over and over and over again if you work, work hard, hard enough yeah. just work hard mm -hmm. or you know alternatively you're not good enough or you know this research is not innovative or mm -hmm. yeah it, it could just be it's all within this structural system of the um the institution that we're all we're supposed to buy into but um I'm not, I'm not buying into it. Um, so kind of in that spirit, <laughs> we're gonna play a song, take a short little break. Um, I want to play, a, we're gonna play Lauren Hill's I Get Out. Uh, so this is a song where um, she's talking, it's, she's talking about um, leaving the music industry, but this can also, if you look, when you listen to the lyrics, it can also apply to, um, institutional violence and um, our experience as poor women of color, as mothers in these spaces, uh, in these academic spaces. So um, we're gonna play this song for you and we'll be right back. box is I'll get out of all your boxes 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 I'll get out of all your box
Cementing this repression, promoting mass deception so that no one can be healed. I don't respect your system, I won't protect your system. When you talk, I don't listen. Who made up these rules, I say? Who made up these rules, I say? 
Okay, and we're back. Um, you know, I've been coming back to this song. I always come back to the song again and again and again. And um, I think her, well, her entire performance, this is from the MTV Unplugged performance that she did, um, which itself, so I recommend just her entire set. Um, but also this song in particular, it really speaks to um, institutional structures and the her, the lyrics where she says promoting mass deception so that no one can be healed I don't respect your system I won't protect your system and you know I'm at the point now where I'm in my fifth year of the PhD program um, you know I've experienced a lot I've experienced a lot and um, and I'm kind of at the place where, uh, you know, I'm done with fear. You know, I'm done with pretending that these are spaces for social justice and racial justice, uh, spaces of um, feminism. I'm done pretending because we're not practicing it in so many ways through because of these structural um, issues um, of the corporate neoliberal institution. So have you heard that noise? That was our mic. <laughs> the mic, for some reason, it slipped. Um, but um, I just want to go back and kind of actually talk about the UCLA shooting. Um, so this was Wednesday. Um, it's still fresh on my mind. It's still fresh on everyone's minds, everyone I know um, who's been in touch with me. Uh, I guess I'll just say a little bit about my experience. So I was on campus that morning. I had to go to work. Um, so I arrived at work early. I worked near the residence halls at UCLA. And um, normally we open the office at around 11 a.m. and I arrived at 10. And normally part of my route uh, to get to campus, I pass by the engineering building um, to like make a left towards uh, the parking uh, near my job. And so this time, as I was passing near the engineering building, um, I noticed a couple of cop cars, and I thought it was strange. And because I'm an overly cautious person, I like knew to avoid the area. I took a separate route. I just left um, and made a turn early, um, and then went to the office. And I noticed I had received a few text messages, but didn't think much of it, because I normally get text messages in the morning from other people. So I got to my office and checked the phone, and uh, I only to find out that it was a shooting. Again, we've had shootings on campus. We've had other incidents of violence, of uh, stabbings, of um, suicide attempts on campus. So it's not new. And, and so I wasn't immediately alarmed until we got the next um, 
text message that there was an active shooter and that the school was on lockdown. So at that time, like my three colleagues who were supposed to arrive at 11 a.m. were instructed to stay home. Um, and um, my boss called me. I was instructed to lock the office, shut the blinds, turn off the lights, stay on lockdown, stay low, um, close to the ground. And I was in this small office by myself. So for over two hours, I was frantically checking my phone. I looked um, down because we're on the second floor to, to look uh, to see if anybody was out there. I noticed the campus was bare. It was desolate. It was completely quiet. It was, it was eerily quiet. Um, there were rumors going, because I was checking Twitter, Facebook, email, text messages. There were rumors of four shooters on campus, rumors of people hearing shootings on different parts of campus. People were tweeting images of them barricading their classrooms because they had doors that opened outwards that wouldn't lock. Um, I was getting text messages from friends and family just like to find out if I was safe. So um, this was two, two and a half hours of fear, um, of trauma. So I was. It was such a relief to find out that the event was contained and that we were no longer in danger. Um, one of our friends, actually her son was on campus at the child care center that's, that's there. And so just the thought of, of any child being in danger can really affect you. So like the point is, even those of us that weren't on campus were affected. Um, there was an outpouring of anger, of sadness um, all over social media. And, and how are we supposed to react to this? That when all of the offices on campus were instructed to stay open for the rest of the day. So we were supposed to act as if nothing happened when the entire university, if you look at, up the images, the entire university was covered, not just that area, the whole university was covered with SWAT teams, with UCPD, LAPD, bomb squads, all of LA was on tactical alert. So how do you ignore that? How do you ignore images of people getting taken out of their classrooms only to get searched, only to have their hands up? Um, how do you ignore that event when you thought your life was in danger? So I don't understand how you can ignore that, how you can move on um, as, if, as if nothing happened. And this is just one issue. Shootings on campus, that's one issue of the broader problem of institutional violence happening in campuses across the U.S. and beyond. So there are other issues that we want to call attention to, like academic hazing. When professors force you to go through these like ridiculous academic hurdles because they went through them too, when some of them aren't even necessary, with sexual harassment, with professors on campus who still hold their tenured titles, even though they've got multiple cases against them of them sexually harassing and raping women, from exploitation of overworking and undercompensating individuals. Um, and so like, it's not right. We want to call out administration and faculty who are not taking accountability for the violence that they reproduce. Institutional violence, um, I know we were talking about this, how we kind of open with what is the definition for institutional violence and how it can look like so many things. Um, institutional violence is um, having your, so this, this actually happened to me and Yvette um, mm -hmm. because we're part of the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program. And um, they have a picture of me and Yvette and another uh, student of color. The three of us, we were on a panel for a previous Mellon Mays uh, conference. So institutional violence can look like having your picture. So this is a picture of the three of us, three mm -hmm. students of color, advertise the, the Mellon Mays program that's called Preparing for the Professoriate. 
Um, and, you know, they used our image in this picture when, and they sent it out to all of the Mellon Mays ABD students, you know, on their listserv. So, you know, they're using our picture on the one hand, but on the other hand, the reality is that I'm a poor woman of color, single mom, dark skinned, um, with all of my um, intersectional, intergenerational kinds of oppressions. But the reality is that I've been pushed out from academia before I even started. Like, I didn't even have a real chance long before I even started the PhD. <laughs> and institutional violence means, um, so this kind of leads to kind of my next point, that institutional violence means that publish or perish is not a metaphor. People are dying. We could just look at what happened at UCLA on um, Wednesday, but also other kinds of violences where um, other students who have been depressed have had mental illness issues and struggles, um, suicide attempts. Um, this is, people are dying. This is the reality. Uh, institutional violence means that, um, you know, we get uh, an email from my department chair in response to graduate student concerns, and his response is, uh, and his words, in his words, uh, the problem is the, or I'm paraphrasing, the increased visibility of problems. Um, the, so in other words, um, the increased visibility of problems in the email, he kind of said, this is what's heightening the problems within my graduate, within the graduate students in my home department. And in other words, um, the faculty are not taking accountability for, um, for the issues or some of the problems that are happening, which the graduate students addressed to and communicated to them. Um, and this type of response that completely uh, discounts and doesn't take any accountability actually contributes to the toxic culture we are in. And so this, this is what institutional violence looks like in my own department, but other but also, this is not just something singular specific to my department. This affects um, every institution and every college. So, um, and we're, we are, as Yvette said, we are calling attention to it because, um, you know, we need to, in order to have some kind of um, change, we need our, um, there needs to be accountability. And this even, um, is even related to the um, LA Times article where uh, an article that was published yesterday in which uh, the LA Times writer um, was talking about the gunman. So this is the quote from the LA Times article. Um, a source calls the gunman's accusations in which, uh, so it's been reported that the shooter was upset about um, how the professor stole his code, his codes, computer codes. So uh, in the LA Times article, it says, a source called the gunman's accusations absolutely untrue. The idea that somebody took his ideas is absolutely psychotic, a universe source said. And Klug, who was described by friends as a kind and caring man, bent over backwards to help Sarkar finish his dissertation and graduate, even though the quality of his work was not stellar. Bill was extremely generous to the student who was a subpar student, the source said. He helped him out and interceded for him academically. So um, even in this case, um, any kind of, there's, there's no account, so it, this source or the way this article is written, um, again, the account of, there is no accountability in the sense that um, 
any kind of concern or critique is dismissed in this case as psychotic, absolutely psychotic. This cannot be when the reality is our institutions are set up this way um, in this structure of power. So, um, and also the details about how this person was a subpar student and the quality of his work was not good um, and yet this professor um, helped him. So while obviously, of course, we, um, what we're critiquing is not necessarily the individuals. What we're critiquing is this um, this idea that um, somehow this would not have been if he was just a good student or he wasn't upset about his grades or he didn't achieve some kind of prestigious academic position. Um, so the, the, these are the toxic ideas that are kind of permeating and kind of normalized. So this is what we're calling attention to. All right, so that's that's a lot. That's a lot that we've said, but we also want to make some time to talk about anecdotes. Um, we want to talk about um, what can we do to heal from these forms of institutional violence. And so um, I think, Cecilia, if you want to start with your forms of anecdotes and then I'll follow up. Um, so the... So what are some in antidotes to institutional violence and that kind of brings a question of where's our medicine? And the way I think about it is we are the medicine that we've been waiting for. We are the healers we've been waiting for. Antidotes can be the community. It's different kinds of kinship, friendships, relationships. It's expansive. It's about love. It's about our ancestors. It, it includes anger. It's lifetime work. Um, and, you know, like uh, quoting Nina Simone, um, freedom means no fear, love means no fear. It means our grandmothers, survivors. Um, sometimes it means resigning from these academic spaces and institutions like Sarah Ahmed. Sometimes it, wor it means working within these spaces and creating some kind of change. Um, for me, it means asking for help and it means making this podcast and it, it means me um, visiting um, a healer who can help me um, with the weight, who can share the weight of this intergenerational kind of pain and trauma as women of color and our histories of colonialism. Um, she told me to put my energy into things that will sustain me and um, that's what I plan to do, that's what I hope to do. So what's my antidote? Um, I guess for me, and, and I find this difficult to talk about because I'm not someone who lives with no fear. Um, the opposite, I, I live in fear a lot. And I've, I've had to learn to, to face my fears, uh, especially as a mama. Like Being a mother has been really empowering because it's forced me to face fears, fears that I didn't even know I had, fears that I've been living with ever since I can remember. So. So for me, my antidote is making time for friends and family. It's being kind to myself. Um, even if it means I'm less productive, I used to value myself only based on productivity. I no longer do that. So um, it's acknowledging my educational privilege and offering others my help. Um, it's making decisions based on what I want to do and not what others expect of me. 
Um, that reminds me of an article that you know I posted on Facebook the other day about like what was it called? It was 13 fucks you stop giving when you're a grown woman, and um, and that's really what it is. It's like I'm gonna do me and I'm gonna do what I want to do, and even if it's not respectable or even if it's not um, what other people want you to do, even if it you know even if it goes against what traditional notions of whatever, of being a woman, of being a mother, of being whatever, you're gonna do what you wanna do because that is what you need to do to heal yourself. And for me, sometimes that means calling people out on their bullshit. It means calling them out when they do something that is unjust, calling them out when they're doing something that's violent. And so for me, doing that, speaking up is healing because that's why we're talking about this today because we're tired, we're tired of suffering in silence. And so um, even if we're afraid, we're still going to speak up. And I think um, just kind of speaking to that fear, there is, there is a lot of silence and shame in academia um, with graduate students because we're afraid of repercussions, we're afraid of being put on academic. So these are all things that have happened to um, either ourselves or people we know. You know, we're afraid of, um, um, the repercussions, which could, academic repercussions, which could be, you know, being put on academic probation. It means uh, being asked to leave or being pushed out of the graduate program. It means um, not having access to fellowships. Yeah, no uh, competing for fellowships mm -hmm. where only certain students are awarded a certain amount of grants. Um, it means uh, maybe getting a poorly written letter of recommendation. Mm -hmm. um, it means uh, being told you might not pass your uh, dissertation defense, which can jeopardize uh, a job you've already secured. You know, it could mean so many things. And so there, these are very real repercussions. And, um, and, but I think that's why it is so important to like speak back to power and speak to that fear. Mm -hmm. And, um, and in this way, we could think about how it's not about the it's not about the individual. It's just I think that's my most important um, my most important um, way that I frame it. It's it's not just my department. It's not just UCLA where mm -hmm. the shooting happened. Um, it's not just one individual who you know denied us access to a room for childcare at a national conference. It's not just about the one person, it's about looking at this system of toxicity for what it is, and then um, mobilizing, or you know, what can we do to change these structures of power? Because mm -hmm. this cannot be. Yeah, so for us, it means taking agency. Um, I, think, I think we have to wrap up right now, so we wanna wrap up with some shout outs. Um, I have a lot of shout outs this week. Um, I want to give a shout out to everybody who contacted me on Wednesday. So um, shout out, shout out to my partner, of course, because he texted me the entire two hours that I was freaking out. Shout out to my amazing boss, Angela, who kept calling to check in on me. Uh, shout out to my colleagues, Rebecca and Nasia, who texted to comfort me, even though they weren't able to make it to campus. Um, shout out to my other colleague, Gabriela. She was on the other end of campus and still contacted me to make sure I was okay. My brother, Ricky, his wife, Araceli, texting me if I was safe. 
my friend Nora, she prayed for my safety. Thank you to Isabel, who gave me updates on CBS reports via text message. Um, we were actually both alone that day, so that was comforting to, to be in touch. Shout out to May, my son's childcare provider. She checked in on me while keeping my son safe and off campus. Shout out to my brother Eric and his wife Jenny, who texted me later that day. Shout out to my little sister, who wished I wasn't on campus that day. She listened to the LAPD police radio station for me. Um, shout out to Anna and Marilu. They were both scared and outraged later that night on my behalf. Shout out to Ceci, who's here with me. Um, I appreciate everything that you do, and I appreciate, I appreciate you checking in on me that day. That means a lot. Um, and then lastly, shout out to my mama. Uh, she simply texted me with the phrase, cuídate mucho, that morning. And I know, I'm sure she was terrified um, and a lot more worried than she let on, but she, she still checked in on me. And um, for my shout outs, I want to give a shout out to Christine. I'm sending a lot of medicine thoughts to her um, and uh, everything that she does. Um, her and her son and also um she's finishing her proposal and advancing so you know we, we support her <laughs> yeah can't wait um also shout out to judy our other chicana mother work member who's writing her ass off right now like i know Get <laughs> it. Fact, that's what she's doing <laughs> at this very moment um shout out to michelle um our other chicana mother work member and we're setting sending her um just some extra love and support and we thank her for just constantly inspiring us with all of the care and the love that she embodies and shares with her loved ones, even during very, even during difficult circumstances. We love you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out to my mom. I haven't seen her in a few weeks. Um, I, I love you and I miss you and I can't wait for you to clown me like you always do. Uh, shout out to... Um, Jess, Jen, and Flody in my PhD cohort for their support, and especially Jen for her phone call because she reminded me that we're, I'm a sorcerer, we're sorceresses. How do you say that in a plural? I don't know. Sorceresses. sorceresses. <laughs> <laughs> um, shout out to Jolie who checked in with me and she's helping me envision what radical childcare collectives can look like. Um, a shout out to my healer who she keeps my uh, stubborn Taurus ass in check <laughs> <laughs> and she makes me take responsibility for things like what is that <laughs> <laughs> and um, I need to make another appointment with her pretty soon um, that's all we have for now um, thank you for listening uh, thank you for sharing um, this time and space with us. We send you lots of light, love, and healing your way, so please, please make that um, a priority for yourself. Thank you. Thank you.